Welcome once again to the Martin V Vintage Disco and Dance Show here on Radio Illumini, where we shine a light onto the unknown, hidden, secret and taboo. It's great to have your company as always, and today we're going to go right back in time to the very early 1970s and look at what I've called the Dawn of Disco. In fact, the foundations of the 1970s style disco were being laid even a decade before, with the gradual opening of clubs most notably in Paris, London, New York and Los Angeles, where records were spun but dance floors were usually small, the sound and lighting systems rudimentary and the expansion of these clubs was put on hold by the advent of the hippie movement in the late 1960s. However, in 1969, the Stonewall Riots gave further impetus to this fledgling club scene, and as the 1970s got underway, things quickly started to get moving again, both on the dance floor and in the number of clubs opening around the world in the new disco format. In today's show, I've chosen six tracks from those early days, and after we've heard them, Jay has kindly given up his time to help me pick them apart and talk about some of the surrounding issues. These are the six tracks we're going to look at. Um, first of all is uh, Soul Makosa from Mano de Bango in 1972. Track number two is by First Choice, The Player from 1974. Track number three is Patty Joe, Make Me Believe in You from 1974. Number four is Silver Convention, Save Me from 1974. Number five, A cover of Sunny from Yambu, 1975, and finishing up with Betty Wright, Where Is The Love from 1974. So let's get straight into the music with Mano de Bango and Sol Makosa. Ya sama cosa. Ya 
You've been listening to the Dawn of Disco mix. Um, that was six tracks right from the very early days of disco. And just a reminder, you're listening to Martin V's Vintage Disco and Dance Show here on Radio Illumini, where we, as always, we shine a light on the unknown. And I think quite a few of these tracks might be unknown to you. But I'm very glad to say that uh, to talk about them with me today, I've got Jay. And Jay, you were listening to these tracks last night, I think. None of the tracks I actually knew before I was listening to the recording you sent me. So that was new for me. But uh, when I listened to the first track, what struck me most was that this is not exactly what is classically a disco track, but I could hear that there were, the style is actually emerging in this track. With a, but there were a blend of styles. What I could hear was a bit of jazz coming along. And uh, it's very clear, it's a 70s track. And it, it uh, showed that, well, I could hear that period very clearly. What it reminded me, actually, it did, because it didn't really sound a classically 70s disco track, what it actually sounded a bit more modern. It reminded me of Left Fiend, which came around the millennium. Right. Yes, I, I, I can see what you mean. I think, and just to remind listeners, we're, we're going to talk about the tracks one by one. So um, we, we've started talking about the first track, which was um, Mano de Bango and Sol Makosa from 1972. And I think uh, because, as you say, Jay, I think because it's not doesn't have that classic disco sound it's probably the track out of the six that sounds the least dated which is ironic as it's actually the oldest track out of the six which which was actually a surprise because when i started listening to this given that it's all of this so i was expecting a certain kind of uh, genre to shine out of that and it didn't and when i thought hang on this actually reminds me of left Wing, which i used to listen to a lot around in the millennia this is actually quite modern mm. so that that was a surprise and as you said because it doesn't box itself into that style you could actually see it actually passes the test of time it's yeah. quite interesting i mean i can i think you could just about even play manu de bangu now actually in, in, in some settings and i don't think people would think oh god that sounds like you know a ray from the grave that's right yeah well, just a bit of info on the um, on the performer, Mano Dibango. He is originally from Cameroon. Um, I say is. Um, I, I believe he actually passed away only last year, well into his 80s. He began his musical career in Brussels and Paris in the 1950s. And I had a quick look at his discography, and that goes back to about 1961. So, you know, he was already, you could say, a veteran musician, even by 1972 when this track came out. The reason I included Soul Makosa was it's very often cited as the first disco track. Now, I mean, you can never really say what was or was not the first disco track, but so many people seem to have decided it was this. And it's an interesting choice to get that title, I think, because as you say, Jay, it doesn't really have that classic disco sound. I mean, it's very much an African-influenced track. I think perhaps it has got that title simply because it's got a very strong beat, which, to be fair, a lot of music in 1972 didn't. Even music that might have been played um, in discotheques, as they were then called. The, the, the beat could be well, it, it wouldn't have been like it is in Sol Makosa, you know, it's very strong, it's very regular, and I think it would definitely have got people dancing in those days. 
Any other thoughts on that track, Solmacosa? Well, as I said, uh, this track sounds fairly... It doesn't sound dated by any means. If it was remixed and relaunched again in 2021, it'd be interesting to see what... Uh, how, how people will react to this track again after such a long time. Yeah, I, I, I think it would be. And, um, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe that will happen. Uh, so that it, it's an interesting one. I mean, all, and also, you, you've got to remember, when you go back as far as 1972, you, you were really in a completely different world as, as regards music. I mean, I don't think the word disco was even in use in, in those days, that there were discotheques. And also, I don't think disco was the name of a music genre at that time so you know you're really going back into history then one little difficulty i had putting together this mix of very early songs was that we're talking about the pre 12 inch single era so all the songs are of necessity shorter uh, which which means you're you're dealing with what can be fitted onto a seven inch vinyl single which is usually about four minutes max. So these tracks were not made with DJ mixing in mind. So apologies to everybody if some of the transitions between them were uh, perhaps not as smooth as they might be, but you are dealing with some challenges when, when you're playing music of this era because it wasn't really made for mixing. So I hope I did at least a reasonable job. Well, I mean, I listened to the track. For me, especially between the first and the second song, the transition was very clean in the sense I didn't even notice that the track changed. He like was concentrating more on the vocals and like the gear. Yes. That's, that's, that's the second track. Which is <laughs> I mean, I think the secret of a good transition is you suddenly realise the transition has taken place. So let's move on to track number two, uh, which is a group called First Choice and their track called The Player. And this was from 1974. Now, just a little bit of info about First Choice. They were quite an active group in the early and mid-70s. They'd had a couple of more pop-oriented offerings, uh, such as Armed and Extremely Dangerous and Smarty Pants, which I think were released about the same time as The Player. But to me, this track, The Player, it really does have a bit of a disco vibe. And interestingly, some of the other first choice tracks of that era I know have been sampled on more recent house music. And I don't know if anything from The Player has ever been sampled, but listening to it, I think it would be a very good track to song. So how did you find The Player? What did you think of it, Jane? I first listened to this track, what I thought I can hear much more 70s disco. The style is actually much more stronger in this track than the previous one, as we discussed. What it did have was very good vocals. What I thought it had a bit of Motown vibes. Again, a slight blending of different styles was still happening in the sort of early to mid 70s, and I could hear that. And given that it had a very good beat and rhythm, and it was actually quite a pleasure listening to it. I actually rated it one of the highest in the six tracks at seven out of 10. Now that you've mentioned that it was, act I mean, I never knew about First Choice till I listened to it last night. So for me, it was brand new and it did make me think, yes, this is something I would listen to 
that was a good choice. Yeah, I mean, I think even the track in its entirety, I, I think if it were remixed, you know, possibly even just reusing the original vocals, but just putting them on a, a more slightly more modern sounding backing, I, I think it could work really well, e- even in um, clubs of today. What, do, do you agree? I do agree with that, yes. Uh... I think it's definitely got the right sound. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it probably is one of my favourites. I, I mean, although I knew First Choice as a group, I didn't actually know this track. So I was I was pretty impressed with them. So I would uh, probably agree with you. Um, so, so then we move on to track number three, which is Make Me Believe in You by Patty Joe. Now, the only reason I ever knew about this track was from reading about it in a novel. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Andrew Holleran book called Dancer from the Dance. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. No, I mean, it was basically about the lives of various young gay men in New York City in the early 70s. And uh, I mean, I can't really remember the story. I I think it was one of those books which sort of has a lot of intertwined little stories. But what I do remember is uh, that there's a lot of name dropping of popular tracks that were played in the clubs of the day. And one of the tracks he mentions almost incessantly is Make Me Believe in You by Patty Jo. I'll be honest, she hardly did anything else when you look at her discography. And she passed away some time ago but I think she's left behind her a, a great track here it's probably got one of the longest intros before she starts singing so it really kind of builds up the anticipation so what were your thoughts about this what I thought uh, this track was a bit slower than the first two but again strangely it sounded remarkably modern mm. for something which is from 74 and my view was that this track was uh, didn't sound like a cliche of a disco clone track but somehow although it's modern and but because it's slow i didn't really have the excitement of listening to this track and i was i was actually thinking oh well I want to wait for the next track now to come along. So for me, this actually had the lowest rating. Okay. I mean, it's a bit of a... I think it's got a little bit of a moody ambiance, hasn't it? Yes. Um, Perhaps more of a sort of towards the end of the night kind of track, you know, sort of uh, three o'clock in the morning. That was Patty Joe, anyway. So uh, we're moving on to something that was quite different, actually. So um, for track number four, it's uh, Silver Convention and Save Me. That, and we're still in 1974 with this. But a change of geography, because we're um, going over to continental Europe for Silver Convention, because it was actually produced in Germany. Um, now, uh, something I have been mentioning over other shows is what a big player Germany became as the 70s went on in disco music but I think at the stage that um, things were at when this track was produced that was all yet to come. It was actually just I think a bit of a tryout project really because at the time it was recorded there was actually no group called Silver Convention. The producers just got together a a selection of session musicians and singers into a studio and recorded this one track. And, you know, I would assume it's like, well, okay, let's put this out and see what happens. We'll say it's by Silver Convention. But there was actually no Silver Convention group in a formal set. And I I suspect perhaps to everyone's surprise, it became a big hit. It, It was actually a chart hit in the UK. Okay. Um, which meant it had to be shown on top of the pops. Uh, and I think um, as a result of that, 
there, there was a call for a group to perform it. So the three ladies who became known as Silver Convention were sort of hurriedly got together and put on stage so they could mime to this because of course they never actually sang it on the recording. Now another difference with the Silver Convention track is all of the other tracks, um, I don't think they used any electronics at all. So there was no drum machines. Um, everything was just traditional instruments played by human beings. I think, you know, I could be wrong on this, but I've got a feeling some rudimentary electronics were used on the Silver Convention track. And there was a funny rumour around that I, I remember when it came out, not absolute rubbish, I'm sure, but there was this rumour that Silver Convention's music was all written by computer which it definitely wasn't actually but it was one of those rumors that because people didn't know much about computers in, in, in 1974 it was sort of half believed and I think was just a kind of tongue-in-cheek but fairly effective way of giving the the music a bit more publicity so uh, what, what did you think about Silver Convention and Save Me? Well the F Silver Convention song is faster paced than the previous one which I and again, this is where I could actually hear much more. Now that you mentioned, it was actually the track which is using more the kind of music uh, instruments which disco tracks would be used later on at its classic phase in the sort of late 70s. And that style I can hear because if you think about another, I didn't actually, when I listened to this one, I didn't actually realize it was a German band. Now, but another 1970s famous German, I want to say, is it, was it Disco? Boney M, very popular. Yeah, that, that, that was also German produced. I mean, you know, yeah. basically Silver Convention opened the floodgates as, as regards Germany. And, and once they'd become successful, so many other acts and producers, and of course, how could we fail to mention Donna Summer in this conversation, yes. who, whilst not German herself, all her successful 70s stuff was German produced. Which again was, uh, this, this track, didn't, I didn't think it was from continental Europe when I listened to it. So that was a surprise uh, when you just mentioned it now. Again, what, what I'm hearing, a lot of these tracks, which I don't think I hear later on with like more classic discos like Boniem, is uh, the trumpets and that kind of instruments being played on possibly still remnants from the 60s and the early 70s. I think that's true. Um, I mean, I think it can be, it's quite a good sound. I, I like the way they've done it on Silver Convention. And I think uh, there are some uh, horn sections on a few of the other tracks as well. Uh, but I, think, I think you're right. It is a bit of a, a leftover from the 60s. And I think it was part of that early disco style, which got dropped. You know, I, I think when, when a new form of music emerges, the same as anything new, there's a bit of experimentation going on. And, so, you know, some things get kept and others get dropped and I, and I think the horn sections did get dropped you're absolutely right but otherwise I thought that uh, this is much more I can see a music being played in the 70s dance floor which I wouldn't have any first experience but I can imagine yeah I mean I always liked that track actually um, they actually became a phenomenally successful group for about three years I mean they even had number one hits in the US but to crack the US market is not 
a small thing to do. And you know, when you listen to the kind of stuff they did, it seems quite surprising that they were as successful as they were. But I, I suppose perhaps it just goes to show that there was a real sort of thirst for new sounds uh, around the time they were producing it. So it was like the right sound for, for the right time. I would also say that this is the first stirrings of what later came to be known as Eurodisco. From the technical point of view, that, that early on, that Germany was actually using electronic music before it became much yes. more popular, doesn't surprise me, given that in the 70s, not Japan or East Asia, it was Germany which was actually the electronics pioneer in many respects. Now that's an interesting comment because I think you're I think you're absolutely right and and of course you had a um, another German group which wasn't disco but actually they were electronic pioneers uh, you, you may have heard of Kraftwerk of course yes and I think they laid the ground for a lot of the um, electronic techniques that disco was to use in in later years just listening to Silver Convention you know it's not all acoustic. Okay, well, that's uh, that's Silver Convention, and then <clears throat> so we're going to go on to Yambu, which um, and they've done a cover of the well-known track "Sunny." I mean, so many people have covered "Sunny," I couldn't really even say who did the original. To be quite honest, it's one of those. I've got a feeling maybe the original was someone like Chris Montez, but I could be completely wrong. Anyway, Boniem do. Oh yeah, they did one as well. You're absolutely right. Yeah, they they did a, a further disco version probably about three or four years after this one. Which was one of my childhood favourites. So that's what I... When I listened to... I mean, I actually saw the name of the track, the memory of me listening as a child to Podium, which was my parents absolutely loved it. So they had all the records and uh, So funny, yeah. But yeah, that possibly is familiar, so... That's interesting. I'd completely forgotten about the Boney M cover, but you're absolutely right. And of course, it was actually more successful, I think, than the Yambu one, which, to be honest, I'd, I'd never heard of before I was researching uh, music for, for this show. Um, I mean, how did you think their version compared? Well, this is where my bias will come in, given that it was <laughs> a childhood favourite, the Boney M funny. Yeah. This was a disappointment to me because I thought, hang on. This is the same cover version. I, I also knew that was a cover version. Not sure myself what was the original track. But I thought this is a I was expecting a certain kind of music which didn't actually shine through this track. And I thought there were a lot less vocals in this track, but there were more emphasis in the background music and, and over the tr- I think the vocals were repeated, which was yeah, I mean, I think it was a very, it was quite an individual interpretation. I, I don't think they'd just taken the song and sort of just sung it like it was written. I suppose they tried to sort of do something slightly different with it. And I, and I agree, they, they, I think, concentrated more on the instrumentals than the vocals. Having said that, of course, that was to a degree a distinguishing feature of disco, where in, in many, many disco tracks, actually, the vocals are not massively important or certainly not any more important than the rest of what's going on. So I suppose you could say they were, um, you know, on trend in their decision to do that. I, I actually thought that the way they'd done it, it had quite a sort of easy listening feel to me. You know, I could I could imagine it even being played on, on Radio 2 in those days. And it's it's interesting because I've I've got a theory that along with, it kind of links back to 
black exploitation music, the, the film soundtracks I was mentioning, and that also links into the Patty Joe track. But a lot of easy listening musicians, their music was always denigrated as like sort of elevator music or you know Muzak. It was never really taken very seriously. But <clears throat> as the 70s moved on, these easy listening people gradually started doing other kinds of music. I mean, they did covers of a lot of the black exploitation tracks um, from from the black exploitation films, and, and of course that, in its turn, fed into disco. So I think there's definitely a link between black exploitation music, disco, and easy listening. Moving on to the last track, we've got. Betty Wright and Where Is The Love. I think this is the most upbeat of all the all the tracks. It very much definitely is true. Yes, I agree yeah. because I rated eight out of ten for this track. I, thought. I think it's definitely one you would sort of put on uh, at peak time. Betty Wright her, was not particularly well known in the UK, uh, although she'd been going for a long time uh, in the US as a soul singer. I think she was well known for a track called Clean Up Woman, which had been three or four years prior to Where Is The Love. But what happened with this track, interestingly, was that she got it produced by a team called Casey and Finch. There's a play on names, with, particularly with Casey, because Casey was actually part of Casey and the Sunshine Band. They did quite a lot of very successful sort of mainstream disco stuff in the, in the 70s. So she got a good production team behind her, and you know, in, in a sense, I suppose she could she could hardly go wrong. I, th I think you can hear the sort of Casey and the Sunshine Sunshine Band sound a little bit in this track, although with the Betty Wright track, it's got a slightly more hard-edged sound than they normally had with music under their own name. But I've, all, I've always really liked this track, and I particularly always liked the, the bit right at the end, where, where you get about two seconds of sound like the bongo drums, and then it fades out. And I always used to wish that that bit could go on a bit longer. Well, well what did you think of Betty Wright and Where Is The Love? Yes, again, as I said, this was the favourite uh, track in the list. First of all, there are much more vocals than the last, uh, the fourth and the fifth. This seems like a more serious song, upbeat, as you say. And uh, I would be quite happy to listen to this track a few more times. This is definitely uh, a winner of the of the list you compiled. That's what, that's what my impression. Excellent. So, so t top marks for for Betty Wright. That, that's, yes, that's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a really good track. I always thought it was a shame there wasn't a longer version because I think that was all there ever was. You know, it, it just seemed to be a track sort of almost crying out for a 12-inch mix. But because it was 1974, it never got one, which is a bit of a shame because I think that would have worked really well. So yeah, so that completes our, our look at the at the six tracks I've included. I mean, it's always difficult to you know hone things down to, to just six tracks. I mean, I, I could have chosen more, but you know, I wanted to have a bit of a conversation about it as well. There are other tracks that perhaps would have been more obvious choices. I, I mean, when people think of the dawn of disco, I, th I think there are in, in addition to Mano de Bango, which is always said to be the first disco track, there are a couple of others always mentioned, namely. Gloria Gaynor, Never Can Say Goodbye, and George McRae, which is Rock Me Baby. I mean, but they're both very well-known tracks. And given that here at Radio Illumini, we're all about shining a light on the unknown, I usually try and 
steer clear of the more well-known stuff, just, just on the basis that most of what can be said about them has probably already been said, not that they're not good track. So yeah, so that was the, the mix, and it, that gradual emergence of disco into, into the world of music was, it actually reflected some quite dramatic changes going on in, in society as well because up till the early and mid 70s i think it, i think it's fair to say that that there was a kind of music establishment at work and uh, the, you know they they exercised their not inconsiderable power via music journalists who who became the, the sort of arbiters of what was considered good and serious music and certainly in the context of the uk that was almost invariably said to be prog rock that was what you were meant to listen to around 1974 if you were to be taken in any shape or form seriously as a music fan and then you know a new sound came along disco which was it was really addressing a completely dem different demographic i mean the the music establishment i think it's fair to say was largely composed of middle-class white heterosexual males not having a go at those people at all but they they were the people that that were sort of saying what was good and what wasn't and disco came along and was really aimed at almost everybody else so it was it was aimed at women it was aimed at non-whites it was aimed at gays so it was uh, you know minorities so it's quite interesting how it was reflective of some big changes going on in society have you got any any thoughts about that side of it the idea that people judge you by the kind of music you like has been true for a very long time. And I'm sure I've not been a student since the late 80s and 90s, so I would know now. But that was a very important part of your identity. And it was quite true in the 80s and the 90s to say, you don't listen to disco. For some reason, disco was discredited as a serious type of music by then. Although 80s music was okay, like the more I, mean, I, yeah. I think I don't think disco really ever was given the accolade of a, a serious type of music, even in the midst of the disco era when it became, uh, you know, massively commercial successful. I think it was still derided by the music establishment. It's just that I think businesses suddenly realised they could make a lot of money out of it, so it it became something that was everywhere and I, and I think as the 70s wore on um, particularly in the US you know disco music came to dominate to to such a degree you would get radio stations that had perhaps previously concentrated on rock or folk music they would overnight become disco stations and I think not unreasonably fans of other kinds of music really began to feel rather sidelined and this was what caused disco to start to disappear out of mainstream America from the middle of 1979 onwards because there was eventually a considerable backlash and you could say that the music establishment started to take back control and reassert their authority over musical tastes. I mean, none of this stuff is provable, obviously it's just theory, but your, your comments about, you know, even in the 80s and 90s, the same thing was going on. It gives credence, I think, to what I'm saying. So I don't think I don't think disco was ever taken seriously by the music establishment. And of course, eventually they they basically saw the end of it. Uh, certainly, as far as the US 
was concerned. And, you know, it might be interesting to have you on and on again, Jay, when we'll, because something I've been looking at in other shows is what, what I call disco in transition. So in, in this show, we've looked at the dawn of disco. Disco in transition is looking at the music as it evolved after disco was removed from the mainstream consciousness in the middle of 1979, what happened after that time. And you tended to find that there was a lot, a lot of experimentation starting to take place, just as we've seen in the six tracks we've listened to today, that it took place in the early days. So that might be an interesting uh, interesting thing to talk about on a future show. Yeah, I'd be quite happy to do that. That would so. be wonderful. Okay. Well, it just remains for me to thank you very much for, for coming on today. I mean, that, that's been a really interesting conversation, and I hope you've uh, brought a new dimension to, to, to disco that you, you might not have been aware of before. Do you think that's a fair comment? That's, that's indeed a very fair comment. Something to find these old tracks and bring back memories from that period was very, very good. And uh, thank you for having me as a guest in your show. I really enjoyed discussing about the music and the social aspect of the type of music as it evolved and changed. Thanks again, Jay. And I look forward to speaking to you again on a future show. Thanks once again to Jay for sharing his thoughts on the dawn of disco with us today and I look forward to chatting with Jay again on future shows. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at any time. My email address is martinb.radio.illumini at gmail.com. That is Mike Alpha Romeo Tango India November Victor Echo Echo dot radio dot India Lima Lima United Mike India November India at gmail.com I really hope you've enjoyed today's show and look forward to you joining me again for more vintage disco and dance very soon this is Martin V signing off have a great week we are playing out with another track from those very early disco days this is Love is the Message from MFSB year of 1973